Life Audio. So welcome to the Gospel Rant. Dr. Bill Sinyard here. Thanks for listening. We are on movement number two of the seven movement Song of Songs. Look, this movement is ridiculously insightful, so modern, uh, so sophisticated. It's hard to believe that it's 2,500 years old. Structurally, it is genius, worthy of being studied in literature classes, psychologically. It's an amazing picture of a traumatized woman or man. Time and again, people who have listened to me speak on the song have talked about how they resonated with the queen in movement number two. They feel that in their lives. They have had to or have chosen to, for a lot of reasons, to hide behind a lattice fence, subconsciously, largely. Well, you can see through the lattice, you can see the new life out there, but you just can't get there. Oh, you're going to love this. My guess is if you don't resonate with it, people will come to mind uh, you think will. So join us in this conspiracy to speak the love of God for the unlovable and share this video with them. Thanks ahead of time. And make sure you intentionally follow this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you register on our podcast page, you will get a diagram of the poetic movements of the Song of Songs. So helpful. We will be right back after some words from our sponsors. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right, so a little bit of review. Same two characters we saw in the first movement. There's the great lover king, the groom, God. He's always present, never critical, never demanding, never complaining. He adores her. His love is transformative. It's not measuring. It's life-changing. It's... Love filling up her shrunken, beat-up, diminished soul, expanding her capacity to love and, and to be loved. And that changes her into a partner, in the end, into a queen. That's what God's love still does. Christian, have you heard that? It's, it is about what you do, but it is also, the big deal is what God is doing uh, to your diminished capacity to be loved and to love. No judgment. Remember, he's God, right? The queen is you and me when he finds us yesterday, today, tomorrow, the next day. If you've been raised in some religious circles, you just don't hear anything about this. You were implicitly or explicitly taught that God is an offended, angry, demanding God who is sitting back and waiting. He hates what you're doing. He, and some ways he just sort of puts you on probation at best, despite, right? There is... Uh, and then there's this neo-evangelistic adaptation of that 
it says God hates the sin and loves the sinners. And that rolls off the tongue like a good bumper sticker, but what the heck does that even mean? I mean, really? It's a fine line to draw, right? And where do you cut that? I'm not sure at all if it means anything to most people, and certainly not to adults who've been traumatized by relationships or teens. By the way, that's everybody. So just pushing back. If you want to comment on that, if you want to dialogue with me, bill at gospel-app.com. You know, the gospel rants made that way. Talk to me. I love it. If you've talked to me in the past, keep doing it. Bill at gospel-app.com. I'll try to get back to you quickly. Well, I want a love that loves me as I am. Not what I do, me. It's that love that makes me want to love God and love others more, the two great commandments. Meaning, I will sin less. That's the point. Anyway, movement two, idea of a God who self-describes himself as a love-struck deer. I get it, it's wildly alien. When I talk about it, it's usually chuckles in the room. Don't shoot the messenger. God wrote it, not me. But that's the point of this whole exercise. If God really adores you as you are that much, how would that make you feel? How would that make you feel when you enter the community of the saints, the worship? I mean, if you weren't walking on eggshells all the time or worrying about having failed too much already or too impure, you've made the uglies, right? Wouldn't this change that? Look, I know one Christian leader Many of you might recognize his name, who regularly says that he hopes that he's done enough so that when he stands in front of Jesus, you know, he knows already he's not going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, but maybe Jesus will say, kind of smirking, well, at least you tried. And the audience get a laugh out of that. I think it's an awkward, uncomfortable laugh because I think it's a little too close. And, you know, it's just theologically not right. Jesus purchased all of God's love for me 2,000 years ago. I don't need to earn anything more. If I could only hear through those, those twisted, beat-up, inner-working models that are stunted and abused, if only I could hear, if you could hear the Spirit, I think we would hear him say, you are my beloved son or daughter with whom I'm well pleased. Yeah, let it grab you a bit. Let it sink in. Do you believe that? Have you heard that? Lately, you know, this is true for you, child of God, whether you attend a church regularly or tithe or faithful, whether or not you're an addict or adulterer, right? This is unbelievable, and it's this good. Are we saying then that God's standards had to be reduced to kind of let us enter in? No, of course not. Uh, the problem is it's her brain. She doesn't meet the mark, and she knows it. She testifies She's confessed that to the reader. She's not worthy of any standards. But the king loves her. He deserves better, and yet he's picked her. He's picked me. In his eyes, she can't seem to mess it up. I'm telling you, this is so good. Uh, she's given him so many reasons to pull away. But if he needed an excuse, she hands it to him on a silver platter. She's so disrespectful. She's so blaming at times. Uh, but he's not taking the bait. Why? Because he loves her. And that's the point. Christians, do you get it? How much God loves you? All right, let's pick the zero to 10 spectrum. Where are you on that spectrum? At 10, experiencing that as a heaven, but where are you in there, right? You may not be a seven, maybe you might be a four, could have a bad week. Are you with me? 
And, I, and this is not just checking a box. This is experiencing. You know that he wants to be with you. Well, the queen at the beginning of movement two just can't get it into her head, into her heart, into her midbrain that the king really does love her as she is. She doesn't love herself that much. No one else has loved her. She gets all of her uglies, and in her eyes, they're magnified. So she comes with this sense of shame and guilt and fear of being unlovable. Uh, she's me. She's you. To some degree or another, right spectrum, zero to ten. Relationally, she's lonely. She's insecure. She's a mess. She's ashamed. Can you imagine, if this is about me and God, how that affects my prayer life, my worship, my overall experiences of God's love for me every day when things go badly, my enthusiasm for witnessing to others, telling other people about God's love. If I was really experiencing it, though, whoo. So movement one ended in a romantic, intimate embrace. For a moment, she is there loving and being loved. For a moment. It's awkward, but she's there. But in the very next movement, the very next verse, the distance comes back. You can almost hear the brain's uh, defensive mechanisms kick in, right? It's not evil. It's just uh, fallen, groaning creation, habitual reactionary behavior. We all do it. Amy Poehler, the comedian, writes in her book, Yes, Please. She's describing this critical inner voice. She writes, this very patient and determined demon shows up in your bedroom one day and refuses to leave. You're 6 or 12 or 15, and you look in the mirror and you hear a voice so awful and so mean that it takes your breath away. It tells you that you're fat and ugly. You don't deserve love, and the scary part is the demon is your own voice. Ah, here's someone else. People don't know that the whole, the sense of deficiency, ouch, it's a symptom of a loss of something deeper, the loss of essence, which can be regained. They think the whole, the deficiency, is how they really are at the deepest level and that there is nothing beyond it. They think something is wrong with them. Something is basically wrong. Maybe you? Well, you know what she's feeling. It's shame whether caused by her own decisions or whether the shame has been forced upon her by someone else, some oppressor. But she feels it. And it's different from low self-esteem. Here's Brene Brown. Shame and self-esteem are very different issues. We feel shame. We think self-esteem. I love that. Good distinction. Our self-esteem is based on how we see ourselves, our strengths and limitations over time. It is how and what we think of ourselves. Shame is an emotion. It is how we feel when we have certain experiences. When we are in shame, we don't see the big picture. We don't accurately think about our strengths and limitations. We just feel alone, exposed and deeply flawed. And here, here she is again. Connection is critical because we all have basic need to feel accepted and to believe that we belong and are valued for who we are. Shame unravels our connection to others. That's how it feels. In fact, I often refer to shame as a fear of disconnection, fear of being perceived as flawed and unworthy of acceptance or belonging. Shame keeps us from telling our own stories and prevents us from listening to others tell their stories. We silence our voices and keep our secrets out of the fear of disconnection. When we hear others talk about their shame, we often blame them as a way to protect ourselves from feeling uncomfortable. Hearing someone talk about a shaming experience can sometimes be as painful as actually experiencing it for ourselves. 
Think of the last time that you heard somebody talk about their shame, confess, and what bubbled up. No judgment, no criticism. It's just telling. It's, it's, it's worth to be that self-aware. Well, the queen is telling us her story, Israel's story, the church's story, my story, your story, to one degree or another. And it, it probably is going to be uncomfortable for us to, and hard to hear it you know, more we get into it, because it's stirring up things of our own. It's a mirror in some ways, so best to be aware and be willing to share that in a safe place. Either here, contact me, bill at gospel-app.com, or talk to a friend or, or spouse. The true and relevant gospel to people like her? Here it is. Christians, we can check the Bronfenbrenner box. Every child, every person, every queen needs at least one adult who is irrationally crazy about him or her. Amen? Well, but knowing that and feeling that are two different things. This is the importance of the message of the Song of Songs. Movement two begins with an insecure queen, an anxious queen. Queen, a alone queen, a separated, protected, boundaried queen with her fears of disconnectedness and fear of lack of enoughness. Few answers to the core questions. Remember, is there someone out there who has my back that I can really trust? And am I lovable? Am I enough? The poet brilliantly imagines all of that as her being behind protective latticed walls. It's so sophisticated emotionally and psychologically. Who is she protecting herself from? Such fear Right? It's generic. She's just protecting herself. It gets to that point, right? She is protected against anything, anyone, including the king, the only source of healing and joy for her. She's protected from that. So she's protected from healing. Check out the structure in movement two. That's verses eight to 17 in chapter two. Highly structured, should be studied in university writing classes. Remember, you can get a free diagram of the entire Song of Songs by registering on the podcast page, gospelrant.com. You'll get another free gift. If you'd like this diagram of movement number two, just email me, bill at gospel-app.com. The 10 sparse verses of movement two are an inclusio, right? So bookends. The groom's described as a gazelle in verse 9 and 17. Poetic bookends that frame the movement. So we know where the movement begins and ends. And notice the four imperatives in 8 to 11. Listen, look, look, see. There is the repetition of the phrase, arise, my darling, come with me, verses 10 and 13. Other words are repeated, your face, your voice, my lover, vineyards, foxes. I'm telling you, this took a great deal of work by a very serious poet. This movement opens with a great lover king apart from the queen, albeit coming. He's leaping and bounding, described as a young stag or a gazelle. And it ends with that same lover stag in an intimate loving embrace with the queen outside of the lattice. That's the movement. And remember, this is from her point of view. As I said early on, I think he's always there. It's just emotionally she checks out and then blames him for being distant, right? Paranoid loneliness. Here, like in each of the movements, is an obvious progression from perceived relational distance to relational closeness, intimacy. This is what God does still. This is the Christian walk, always pursuing his avoidant, ashamed, fearful bride, you and me. This is, this is spiritual formation. This is discipleship. This is what it should look like. God distant, God close. When he finds us at the beginning of our movements, you know, today, yesterday, tomorrow, we're feeling a little more isolated, a little more lonely, a little more not up to par, right? A little uglies going on, a little or a lot, okay? This is, 
I think this is a good point to make. This is the Christian life. Movement two, I think it's such a great metaphor for the Christian life, the Son of Heaven. And I think Christian leaders, pastors, elders, ministers, I think I'd like to invite you to consider this. Your people, when they come to church, when they come to studies, when they come to socials or whatever you do, community, they have these lattices that have been formed by their brain's emotional, relational, and identity issues, and it's keeping them from entering into fellowship with others and with God. Uh, worship. When they come, they probably, the whole place is filled with lattices. No judgment. It's not that they're broken. They're just real people who are living in a real world and have been beat up by this groaning. It's not all their fault. And worship is designed to help people remove the lattices so they can enter into intimacy with God. And by the way, in my opinion, the main place where that takes place is communion. Uh, That's why I'm a big fan of doing it weekly, not cut and dry, but really powerfully invite people to come into the presence, into the arms of God. Because it's there we hear of this God who isn't just resting up there in a distance. He's leaping and bounding at, at that moment. Right. I think communion is movement too, played out over and over in our congregations, in our communities at, at Eucharist. You with me? Here's a great definition of sanctification then for you theologians. It's a shortening of the time between my feeling distant and my time of feeling adored by God. So maybe it was 10 years, now it's five years or, or weeks or days. Are you with me? All right, listen, this is probably as good a place as any to get some words from our sponsors. We're going to take a break. Let me step back to talk about another elephant in the room. Uh, I think I've heard feedback on this, this line. It's the gospel, but let's be honest, it would have been very difficult for folks in the Old Testament particularly to just figure out how the holy perfectionistic God of the Torah could do this. God naturally loves the righteous. Psalm 1, the righteous are blessed. If you haven't been righteous all of the time, you expect a curse. He's a Torah perfectionist in the highest possible sense. Everyone knows that perfectionists are kind of difficult to live with. But Jesus changed all of that. The groom loves the bride so much, and he's a perfectionist, that he legally pays for all of her crimes, all of her bad choices, all the time she didn't love God and love others, all the time she's pursued other lovers. And mysteriously, the groom's record of perfect faithfulness is put into her unauthorized biography. Take a look at the Gospel app shape. When God finds us, we are way down to the right hand, under the curve, selfish, self-focused behaviors, downward trek, and it's made worse by guilt. Guilt is I messed up, I feel remorse. It's made worse by shame, I am a mess. It's made worse by orphan bent, I'm going to fix this on my own. And addiction, that's those people, places, and things that I run to to get rid of guilt, shame, and orphan bent. But then Jesus... Right At that point in time, I really can't rest in the arms of God. At that point, no way. Then Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus accomplished a bunch of things. Uh, here are four of them. First, guilt with a line through it, this upward arrow. It removed any possible hindrance that would cause the king, the groom, to ever be hesitant with his love and adoration of me. All of the guilt 
due to all of my crimes and all of my unfaithfulness against God, they're already legally dealt with. I've been found guilty, capital offense, it's already been paid for. There can never ever be judgment or criticism in his heart towards me. He cannot be disappointed even. He's not up in heaven with arms crossed, shaking his head, ever, because it's done, it's taken care of. Hebrews 10 is washed away. The second and third upward arrows or actions or powers on the queen's behalf, righteous and adoption. This refers to Jesus' record of being right and righteousness and being loving others is put into her bio, my bio. And so earning all of heaven and all of the love of the universe and her being adopted, that sense of, of uh, covenant link or married, that would be another way of looking at this. To, uh, now it's locked in intimacy with the king. He will only love her, love me, forever and ever and ever. That's all. And that love is fully purchased for her, for me, and can never ever be diminished or ever held back. The king can only love and like her as much as the son loves the father and the father loves the son. So that is the state of his heart. But hers is very different. She still can't really love back. Too many boundaries, too many lattices, or be loved. Too many boundaries, too many lattices. Not until something changes, not from within her, but from outside of her, external. Because inside of her is this deeply dug neural pathway, these inner working models that are protecting her. Not evil, that's what they do. God made it that way. All right, look at the fourth upward arrow then. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit accesses power from God, Ephesians 3, to make her, to make me feel the other three actions. Yeah? And it's this upward, the last upward arrow, the Holy Spirit himself, that's so reformational, so expansive in my ability, her ability to be loved and to love other people. Again, Paul writes in Ephesians 3 that we need God's power through the Spirit before we can experience such a love. Our brains are so beat up. They're so strangled. They're so afraid of rejection, so ashamed. And again, think of spectrum 0 to 10. You may be a 2 today or a 6, but that's not a 10. So our role is to ask for that, right? Simple? Well, what does it look like? John Calvin speaks of it as a pleraphoria, Greek for confidence, uh, not from within. It's something that happens inside of me by the power of God where I really get it. I actually really experience it. It's this testimony that I have that I didn't believe before, but I do now that God actually likes me. A confidence that God adores me as I am. I mean, for me, I became a Christian and I experienced God's love, but his like, it took 15 years at a counseling office at seminary for me to actually feel that pleraphoria that God actually likes me, that God pursuing me as I am. Look, this is not the typical evangelical or mainline emphasis on knowing no, this is, this is experiential as well. It's both. It's a confidence that incorporates both aspects of that. We created the simple, uncluttered gospel to help regular Christians who are in the midst of all of this, who have those that are working models, to help you ask. We give you the words. It's so simple. We want to be able to leave you with something to do. Here it is. So listen, right now, if you're in a group, pair off and say this aloud with me. Say it to the other person. Uh, eye contact as much as you can, and then switch. But for now, just listen to me say it and let it wash over you. It's the beginning of the end of the lattice. Jesus follower, 
Strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, God actually loves you. He loves you with all of his heart, as much as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. He can't love you any more or any less than he does right now. He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. Now, I get it. It often feels like you've messed it up or need to do something so that God would like you better. Not so. How do you experience it more now? Simple. Good news. There is something that you can do and are invited to do. You can take daily baby steps to ask the spirit inside of you to make you know, experience, and feel just how much God loves you right now. And I don't know how you come to this. I don't know what's been going on. I don't know what's motivated you to listen to this, but you're here. And look... Anyway, back to it. Just ask. Ask again later today. Ask tomorrow. Make it a spiritual habit. Well, right now, what's bubbling up? Did it hit you? Did it jar something? Did it shock you? And no judgment, no criticism. It's a safe place. Do you feel joy? Uh, do you feel like dancing? Man, don't stop. Are you feeling loved? Are you, or are you feeling shame? Anger? Uh, when I first got it, I felt shame. Just say it. That's legit. Disconnected, connected. All of those are normal human reactions to the, to the gospel. Um, let me know. Bill at gospel-app.com. Dialogue with me. From a human perspective, all of this is too good to believe. We can say that. We can admit that. And if something is too good to believe, there's part of my brain that goes, we're not going there. I find this pretty common. One middle-aged lady in a Bible study on the Song of Songs that I was teaching was very worried uh, felt anxious, you kind of, you know, you could tell. She believed that God loved Israel, check, that he loved his church, but she couldn't wrap her beat up head, emotionally beat up head around the fact that God actually loved her individually. Look, I have no doubt because I've talked to other people, other people have emailed me. There's a bunch of you who are hearing this, who are feeling the same thing, but are too ashamed to admit it. Safe place, you can admit it. My passion is to help you hear that music again, to get back into the dance where you were once were, and to hear the Queen's invitation to you to join her and her lover in the garden. Not physical, that's creepy, but the intimacy and, and the chemicals that are going off, that same thing happened in, in, in uh, relationships, dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. So we watch as the Queen struggles under such promised love. She's, she's loved, but she can't feel it. Matter of fact, it scares her. It's her brain. She's immensely uncomfortable in the king's loving embrace, but wants to be there. See that ambivalence? She deeply desires the king's love and is afraid of it, afraid of losing it. Me too. Not in my prefrontal cortex, but in my very powerful midbrain. Oh, yeah. All right. Here's the beginning of movement two. Verse eight. Listen, my lover, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, here's my translation, expansive translation. Listen, my heart, I hear the great lover king's voice calling. My lover is calling to me. Look, my heart, he is drawing near to you very quickly. I can feel his enthusiasm, his desire, like a proud, romantic mountain goat leaping from the mountains, racing at breakneck speed in single pursuit of a humble, domesticated sheep in heat. 
<laughs> My lover is like a virile stag. I am both disturbed and excited. Well, notice as we begin the scene, not only are the king and the queen emotionally and relationally separated, but they are also portrayed very differently. He's free and bounding and leaping down from the mountains, and she's in this dark valley-like shadowy place enclosed behind latticework, inaccessible. She has boundaries. It's what our brains do. The scene opened boldly with a shout, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes. He appears to be very anxious to see her and to be with her. By the way, the voice, this is revelation. This is how God enters the picture. He reveals, he speaks his word. The word is important. Well, from a distance, the horn blows, hey, wife, I'm coming, get ready. But it's not unseemly. It's beautiful. It's the invitational voice of the great lover king. We often have a call to worship in our services. That's what this is. It's a call to worship, and she's not ready. So imagine our services where all these people are in lattices, and the call to worship is God saying, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, and, and those lattices are in the way. Um, yeah, imagine, I've taught this, that imagine a teenage boy driving into my driveway and honking his horn for my two, one of my two daughters to come out. That's not this. <laughs> I live in Colorado. Every mating season, the bull elk start bugling. I can hear them from my balcony. It's the mating call, and they do it all night. It's crazy. But the cows love it. <laughs> well, the king cries out, and it moves and frightens the queen. It begins to, you know, it begins to get that emotion flowing. <laughs> she was shut down, not anymore, because he has heard his voice. And it reminds her poetically, of a young virile stag deer. The lover is bounding down the mountains like a young goat in pursuit of a female in heat. (laughs) Uh, By the way, don't shoot the messenger. You know, I've wondered, and I've spoken to pastors about this, is how would that change how you see worship if that's what we expected? If that's what we expected, God leaping and bounding. One of the most wonderful things about the imagery of the poems is that it requires us to reprogram our notions of God. The default setting for so many career Christians, institutionalized Christians, is that God is this ominous, stiff, business-like, indifferent, kind of an AI personality, right? Like someone who's holding back a reward for you till you do enough. You've got to do enough good stuff or pray right or say in Jesus' name enough. Here is the totally unearned, unilateral enthusiasm of God to be with her as she is, not as she should be or could be, not if she changes. It reminds her more of an amorous buck than how a king might behave. Our God is different from other gods. This is the effect that she is feeling, the effect. God's not a virile deer, right? She's not a doe in heat. She is Using words, only human words, that's all she's got, to how she can describe these off-the-charts feelings that are too good to believe, right? It takes nothing away from God's glory, just the opposite. God is a very desiring God. He created desire, and she is putting into words how she feels. Very sophisticated, very psychological, very bold. He is measuring her worth, and in his eyes, she's good. She's definitely worth this leaping and bounding. And by the way, you too. Did you know? (laughs) No matter how much others are pursuing you or have pursued you or leaping and bounding into your life, God is. Chances are 
You're not feeling it. Not like you could. So he pursues. And he will respond with a love that knows no bounds. Jesus purchased this for her. If you're a Christian, for you. This may trouble you a little bit or a lot, but don't shoot the messenger. All right, we're going to have to stop here for this, this session. Is this beginning to make sense? Is it helping? Um, you know, how would you know? Well, are you feeling a little bit more of the love of God for you? Is that tingly thing there? That's okay. Jesus purchased that and more. Are you feeling a little more loved, more lovable, less alone, less lonely, less isolated? Did you know, according to the CDC, 60% of teenage girls feel severely hopeless and sad? 60%. It goes up to 70% for LGBTQ plus teenagers. Well, if they could begin to access the power of God through the spirit of their inner being, a change can happen, a little or a lot. It is how we're made. It's how they're made. Uh, Imagine their souls, their identity as cups, and if their cups have cracked and are being emptied by this world, sucked dried by bad relationships, the fears and anxiety, the things that happened when they were kids, the bullying, the all that stuff, they're going to feel emptied, and the result is hopelessness and sadness. The effect is the words we use. Well, the Holy Spirit can give them, you and I, access to the fullness of the Father. Ephesians three. I'm not totally sure what all that is, but it's good. This is what this series is all about. When the king finds the queen, her cup is bone dry. And in movement one, we hear the culprits, so many of them, including herself. The gospel of the love of the king for unlovables, for unloved and unlovely, fills the most unlikely cups. Not perfectly, that's heaven, but more than we've got now, it makes a difference. We all need it. Can, can we say that? If you don't think so, yeah, you're in denial. God bless you. Here's Barclay on this gift of Christ to empty unworthy cups. I love this quote. Paul, we shall see, had an unusual, creative, and socially radical understanding of the grace of God arising from the gift. So think of the cup filling, Christ. Whereas good gifts were and still are normally thought to be distributed best to fitting or worthy recipients, Paul took the Christ gift, the ultimate gift of God, to the world to be given without regard to worth, meaning my worth, and in the absence of worth, meaning in the absence of worth in me, an unconditioned or incongruous gift that didn't match the worth of its recipients, but created it. Fill the cup. Wow. All right. More to come. Let us know if you're getting it. We love hearing from people. Bill at gospel-app.com. Feel free to, to drop me a line. Uh, And do us a favor and help us get the word out about the love of God for unlovables. Go wherever you listen to podcasts and intentionally follow. Find out where on the platform you can follow and do that. And if you go to the ask, if you go to Apple Podcast or Podchaser or the like, you can actually review this particular podcast. How did this one hit you? This made me feel. This troubled me. This, those kind of things. Please do. Why? Well, it's encouraging, but also it might be just a thing for someone else to make them want to check this out. All right, so thanks for coming alongside of us and being a co-conspirator. I'm also rewriting my book on the Song of Songs. If you want to know more about that, uh, let me know, bill at gospel-app.com that you want to get on that mailing list, okay? Take heart, child of God. 
Hey there, it's Nicole Eunice from the How to Study the Bible podcast, and I'd love to invite you to join us as we weekly discover a passage of God's Word together. From beginning to end, from principles to practicals, we are here to make sure that God's Word is powerful and relevant to your life. If that sounds like something you're looking for, I would love to invite you to subscribe. You can go to lifeaudio.com and search How to Study the Bible, and we'll see you there.